Hey, Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here, and I'm going to be reading tonight's scripture passage, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 17. So I invite you to turn your Bible to your Bible there. Um, uh, or if you're at home, you're welcome to look it up in line as well. Again, it's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appoint, appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish th the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is God's word. Thanks, Kyle. Well, good evening, Doxology. It's great to be back with you guys. Uh, if you don't know me, if you're new, joining us for the first time and you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And to reiterate what Luke said, um, regardless of what your spiritual background is, whether you've never set foot inside of a church before, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we're really glad that you're with us. And uh, simply put, we're all about Jesus Christ here. And so if you follow Jesus, we want to help you grow in knowing him. And if you don't know Jesus, uh, we want you to have complete confidence that you can know God, uh, not by anything that you do, but all through what Christ has done on your behalf. And that's the good news that we come to celebrate here every single week. And so uh, we're now at the portion of our service where we walk through God's word. This is the primary way that we uh, hear from Jesus and are transformed by Jesus. And so what we're doing is walking through the gospel and the life of David. So David, there's more written about him than any other historical figure, ancient historical figure outside of Jesus Christ himself. And so we're walking through his life because as we learn about David, we learn a lot about who Jesus is. And the passage that you just heard read, uh, 2 Samuel 7, a fun piece of trivia. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. So I'd put it in like top five most important passages in the Old Testament. This passage that we just read is it. And what's beautiful is in this text is we see the entire thread of scripture in miniature. And here's why this matters, because even a lot of people who consider themselves churched people 
don't really understand what the Bible is ultimately about. So if you were to go, you know, into Clarendon and ask people, what do you think the scriptures are about? You'd hear things like, oh, you know, I think it's a set of ethical teachings or maybe it's a book, you know, that shows that that God exists and it tells, you know, a number of stories that are designed to teach a moral lesson. Um, But that those all miss what the Bible is ultimately about. And what the central thread of scripture's message is, is God has made a promise. That's an appropriate way to sum up the thread of scripture, is God has made a promise. And here's the difference that that makes when you see the Bible as God making a promise to you and not just like a set of things you have to do to earn his favor. So just a quick example, a couple, like two years ago, one of my seminary professors, uh, he just pulled me aside and he said, hey, Steve, and he's done a lot in his life. And he said, you know, uh, and he's planted a church and he said, church planting has been the hardest thing that I've done or my family's done. And so I just want you to know, as you and Kelsey head into this, like whatever you need, I'll be there. Um, if you need something, if Kelsey needs something, if your church needs anything, I'll be there. And he followed through on that promise. I mean, there have been a number of times, you know, even over the past uh, six, eight months where he's pulled me out of the proverbial pit where I've just like called him asking for help. And so, and so see, he was an authoritative figure over my life, right? But he made a promise to me and that made all the difference in the world. And so what we see here is God makes a promise to David and by extension, he makes a promise to you. And as we see, and as we see that the God who made us and owns the world, who he is is a God who makes a promise that this allows us to live with incredible freedom and joy. And so what we're going to look at, there's a lot in this text. We could easily do like a six-month study on it. Um, we're just going to pull out three main facets of this promise that God makes to David, okay? So God promises David his presence, God promises David his fidelity, and God promises uh, David a kingdom. Okay, so those three things, God promises David his presence, his fidelity, and then he promises David a kingdom. So let's just walk through those fairly quickly, and then we'll see how does this actually connect to our day-to-day experience. Okay, so first, number one, uh, God promises David his presence. And so this passage begins where at this point, so this fast forwards a number of years from where we left off last week. At this point, the nation of Israel is united. Uh, They're not perturbed now by enemies attacking them. And so there's peace in the land. And so the scene opens with King David uh, hanging out on the porch of his house with his buddy, Nathan the prophet. And he looks over at Nathan and he says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So what he's getting at is, hmm, so my house is opulent, so there's cedar, that means he's very wealthy. There's also stone in his house. But he looks over at the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, which sim- symbolized God's presence. And he says, so I'm living in a really nice house, but the symbol of God's presence is over there in a tabernacle. And a tabernacle was a giant tent. Now, this takes on rich meaning when you said this, this tent was like 300 years old. And so it didn't have the swank it had when it was first built 300 years prior. There's probably a lot of mold in it. It's very wrinkly. And so David's just looking at Nathan and going, like, there's something off about this that I'm living in luxury and God's presence is not. So it's a little bit like if you were to, if you were uh, riding first class on a plane with a good friend of yours and your parents were crammed back in coach, hopefully you'd say something, hopefully you'd look over your friend and go, hmm, we should probably switch places with my parents. Okay, so that's what David's getting at here. And Nathan, like anyone who works in full-time ministry, when someone says, hey, I want to build a massive worship center. I'll pay for the whole thing and you'll get to work for it. Nathan goes, go do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. 
Amen. Yes. Okay. So that's Nathan's response and not so fast, Nathan. So Nathan goes to sleep, verse four. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and says, thus says the Lord, tell David this, would you build me a house to dwell in? So this is outrageous. And this right here, God's reply to, uh, to David is key to understanding this text and the character of God. So it's a bit like this. Like if you were to, if you were to come to me and say, hey, you know, Pastor Steve, Something's wrong here because I live in a mansion, I'm wealthy, and you, pastor, servant of the Lord, don't have a mansion. So I'm going to build you a mansion and a vacation home to boot. I'd be like, that's the soundest logic I've ever heard. Go, you know, go do what's on your heart. But that's not what God says. He doesn't say, build me a mansion because God's character doesn't work like that. What he says is, verse 6, I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. And I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And what God's saying here is, David, ever since I brought the Israelites out of Egypt, have I ever asked you all once for a house? Have I once asked you for a temple? No, I haven't. So why are you trying to build me a house now? And here's the point of what God's getting at. When he says, up until now, I've been moving about in a tabernacle, which is like a portable temple because it's a tent. What God's saying is, David, you might be living in luxury, but most of your people are still poor. Most of your people still aren't settled, and I'm the kind of God that if my people aren't settled yet, I don't want to be settled. And so don't build me a stationary temple because the tabernacle allows me to move about and be present with my people. So it's summed up in a word, God's saying, where my people go, I go. Where my people are, I am. Because I'm not a God who remains distant, but I'm a God who's present with his people. Okay, so we'll come back later to why that's so beautiful, but that's the first thing God promises, is he, pre- he promises his presence to his people. Okay, number two, God promises not just his presence, but his fidelity. So in verse 11, the Lord responds with, the Lord will make you a house. Okay, so he's like, boy, you think you're going to make me a house? I'll make you a house. And so why does God say, okay, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to make you a house? So what God's doing here is, He's deliberately contrasting himself with all the other ancient deities. Because in the ancient Near East, how it worked was a, a king would build a temple for their deity. And then after the king built the temple for the deity, the deity would then cause the king and their people to prosper. So it was a quid pro quo relationship where the king does something for the god. And then in response, the god does something for the people. But what God's saying here is something that a lot of Westerners don't like to hear or disagree with. What God's telling David here is, I'm not like any other God. Or put it another way, all religions aren't the same. Because in every other religion, David, every other God around you, you do something for the God, and then based on your conditional achievement and obedience, the God blesses them. But that's not how I work, because I'm a God of grace, which means I bless you first, I love you first, I pursue you first. And then once you see that your significance and your security rests on my fidelity to you, not your fidelity to me, which waxes and wanes, then out of liberty and joy, then you obey, then you do things. So God's saying, I'm completely upside down from the way that every other God works. It was the same in in the year 1000 BC. It's the exact same thing today. This is who the God of the Bible is. I love you first. I pursue you first. And then once you're secure in me, then you can obey me out of joy and gratitude, not because you're trying to earn my favor. So that's the first thing he's saying is I have unwavering fidelity to you and it doesn't depend on your performance on a given day and then he continues and he says my fidelity to you 
It's not going to be broken by death, and it's not going to be broken by sin. So that's what he means in verse 12 when he says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I.e., David, even after you die, I'm going to remain committed to you and to your line. And then he goes on and he says, uh, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So in verse 13, when he says, He shall build a house for my name, First, what he's referring to is David's future son, Solomon. So he's saying, David, your son, Solomon, is going to build the temple. Okay, so that, that's the first immediate thing that God's talking about. But God's using the word house in a double meaning sense, so not just a physical building, but he's also using the word house, like if you think of um, the meaning of dynasty, like house of Montague and Shakespeare, right? It refers to everybody in the line. When God says, I'm going to establish a house for you, he's saying, I'm going to establish a dynasty in your line and my steadfast love will not depart from you. And so when he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. What he's saying is, David, as your sons have sons who have sons, they're going to mess up big time. And if you want to read like just absolute chaos and evil doing unfold, read the book of Kings, which is about uh, David's sons and how they rebel against God. But what God's saying is, my fidelity remains cemented to your line, even as so many people in your line are going to abandon the ways of me, and abandon me. So death can't annul my promise, sin can't annul my promise, but my steadfast love will never depart from you. Okay, so that's the second thing he promises, fidelity. Again, we'll connect all this in a second. And then number three, God promises David a kingdom. Okay, so in verse 16, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you read that, and you should go, well, that doesn't make any sense, because there's no king in Israel today, correct? But this is the reason why this text isn't ultimately centered on David, that this text is ultimately centered on Jesus Christ. So, do you know how the, how the first line of the New Testament goes, the Gospel of Matthew? So if you're an author, like one of the common... Uh, Sources of angst of an author is, how do I start my book? So if you're a God inspiring the New Testament authors, right, to begin the New Testament, what, how, what's the first line? And the beginning of Matthew starts off, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then in Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary to tell her that she's going to bear a son, she says, Mary, fear not, for you've found favor with God, for you're going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall be made great, and he will be son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the fulfillment of all these promises of presence, of steadfast love, of kingdom, reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ fulfills God's promise to be present with his people. In John chapter 1, 14, it says, Jesus, be God, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt literally means tabernacle. So God literally, he tabernacled among us physically in the person of Jesus. And if you're trusting in him, he indwells you and he's present with you by his spirit. And then Jesus also fulfills God's promise that his steadfast love will never depart from you. 
So how do you know that God's steadfast love will never, ever, ever depart from you? Because Jesus, the true king, he came into this world and he lived an absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect, blameless life. At the end of his life, he did what any good king should do, but never does. He didn't see his power for himself, but he emptied aside, he, took, he put aside his glory and his privilege and his strength, and he bore the rod of iniquity even though he committed none. He was literally beaten with the rods of men. And then on the cross, he had the experience of God's steadfast love toward him removed from us as he took the judgment for your sin and my sin as a gift to you. So that when you come to God with nothing but empty hands, God says, my steadfast love will never depart from you and wraps you up into his arms. Because my fidelity to you and my presence with you is not based on your commitment to me, but my commitment to you, which is seen perfectly in Jesus Christ. My presence, my steadfast love, my kingdom is all fulfilled in Jesus. See, this is as far back as we see it before 2 Samuel, but here in 2 Samuel, the Bible is all about Jesus. God's promise to you that he brings you into his family through Jesus. Okay, so how does this connect to your life now? Number one, trust in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, that's always the most foundational message of Scripture. And then once you're following Jesus, like, what kind of difference does this make? Uh, so we'll go in reverse order. So we'll start with kingdom. What kind of difference does it make that God promises to establish the kingdom of Jesus forever? And here's the difference that it makes. I mean, many, but here's one. Okay, so currently, at least in our city, it's becoming increasingly socially unacceptable, or at least it's not as socially advantageous to be a Christian. And in some ways this is good because it forces those in the church to examine themselves and say, am I following Jesus because it's convenient or he's a nice bonus, you know, to just the life that I want to live? Or am I following Jesus because he's the eternal Lord and Savior? Okay, so there are some, like, many good things, I think, to the church being increasingly on the margins. But, I mean, I don't know, if you're anything like me, sometimes, it, it, especially when a lot of people around you are, have left the church, other people have never set foot inside the church, it can be easy to ask, like, have I put my chips in on the right team? You know, like, is this just wishful thinking? And not even culturally speaking, but even present, like, in your, in your personal life, like, if you're going through a prolonged season of darkness or suffering or loss, it can be easy to ask if you're willing to be honest. Like, God, are you even there? And if you're there, do you care? And the power of God making a promise here that I will not remove my steadfast love from you, and there will be a day that Jesus does return and establishes his kingdom where light does triumph over darkness, where beauty does triumph over despair. Here's the, here's the confidence that it gives you. So it's a little bit like this. A friend of mine was telling me that I see, you know, Muhammad Ali was, he was an amazing boxer. He was unbelievable. And apparently one of the things that Ali would do before his, his matches is, so he was so dominant in the ring that he'd talk smack before his, his matches. But what was different about the way Ali smack talked is he wouldn't just say, I'm going to win, but even in a poetic way, he would say when he was going to win, like what round he was going to knock out his opponent so that when he did it, everyone would know he had absolute mastery over the ring. 
Like even apparently um, he'd go to, to the edge of the ring in the middle of a match and like call over the photographers to make sure they were paying attention so they could get a picture of him knocking out his, his opponent. <laughs> that was how much mastery had, he had over the ring. And what God's saying here is he's saying, I have so much mastery over history that when I make a promise to you to not remove my steadfast love for you, when, my, when I make a promise to renew all of creation where you are brought into joy and gladness, nothing can thwart that day from coming. Okay, because I have that much dominance over history. Like, does this give you confidence? Yes, it should. This is the hope that people have who are trusting in Jesus. And this is also the hope that your friends and family and coworkers need who don't know Jesus. That there is a God who offers them steadfast love and not only just makes a promise, but he's actually able to keep it. Okay, so that's the hope we have with God promising an eternal kingdom here. And the next we'll look at, okay, what does it mean, practically speaking, for God to promise his presence and fidelity to us? So God doesn't just promise that he's master over history, but he promises his presence with you as you head toward the new creation. And here's the kind of power this has. So I, I heard a story about a guy that I don't think many, know, pe- many people know of, but his name is Rick Rascorla, and he lived during the 20th century, and he was a colonel in the military, and he was a Vietnam vet. And he retired from the military, and after he retired, he worked as director of security for the World Trade Center. And so it, it turned out that... Um, uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, he was in the South Tower, and the procedures he had put in place are credited with saving thousands of lives. And interestingly enough, Rick got a call from the Port Authority of New York saying, like telling people not to evacuate their desk. But him being, you know, the Vietnam vet, high-ranking official that he was, says, that's a dumb call. And so he goes out into the hall, and he asks everybody to evacuate the building. And as he goes about evacuating the building, he goes into his office and he calls his wife. Um, Because, I mean, he was, I think in his early 60s, so he still had a lot of his life to live. He and his wife had a great marriage. They had two wonderful kids. And he and his wife had a lot of dreams they wanted to uh, fulfill together. And he called his wife and he says, honey, there's a lot of people here who need my help. And I just want you to know that if something should happen to me, I've never been happier than when I've been with you. You made my life. And then he goes out into the hallways, and what he did, what he did because uh, music was so central to this guy, uh, he goes out and, you know, as things are just chaos around, he plays a bullhorn and sing songs to keep morale up for all the people that are panicked, and he, you know, he ushers them out of the building, and he stuck it out, and, you know, he's saved, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of lives that day, but he didn't make it out, and, you know, so as we ask, like, why did he give his life for those people, and the reason why he gave his life is because what he wanted to do was not remove his presence from those entrusted to his care, I mean, think of the gratitude that those people felt that there was somebody willing, as their life was literally crumbling around them, to give up their life to be present with them and support them so that they could live. In a far more powerful way, that's Jesus Christ promised to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And the reason why you know he's true to that promise is because he proved it on the cross. He gave his life for you so that he could have his presence with you always and so that you could live. And that promise for him to be present with you no matter what, that is more precious than all the jewels beneath the earth. That no matter how topsy-turvy this world gets, no matter how dark this world gets, no matter how, in how many ways your, your life seems to be crumbling around you, he's promised to be present with you, he's promised his steadfast love, and he's promised you an eternal kingdom with him. And so the question that we have to ask is, you know, just as we go about our lives, it, it's common to ask, who's against me right now? Like, who's not treating me the way I should be treated? Who's against me? Or what circumstances are against me? Or looking more inward, like, how do I know I can make it? How do I know I can do what I'm supposed to do for this next year? But the most fundamental question we need to be asking ourselves is not who's against me or what am I going to do, but who's with me? Who is with me? And that's where Jesus always answers with a resounding, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. My steadfast love will never, ever depart from you. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent promise that you gave to David and that is extended to us as well as we trust in Jesus. So um, thank you so much for the uh, incalculable gift of your presence, of your steadfast love, of your fidelity toward us uh, and your kingdom. And so help us to walk in light of that so that it changes who we are and how we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.